Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of DQ with Damani. I'm your host, Damani Madir. And yes, 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 yes. I know everybody's been talking about Anthony Joshua. I know everybody's been talking about Emmanuel Navarrete and Oscar Valdez. Dennis the Menace. But we really need to talk about Alicia Baumgartner. Oh, man, there's just so much that's been going down, and I'm I'm really, really itching to talk about it. So let's get straight into it. So to me, it really seems like Anthony Joshua can't seem to avoid the critics. I don't know what's going on with AJ, man. What's wrong with all the haters? Despite knocking out Robert Hellenius in impressionable fashion, yes, he left a lasting impression on both the crowd and me. Impressive fashion in the seventh round people still somehow have returned to the comparison narrative between himself and the bronze bomber one of the goats of the modern era deontay wilder of course if you have been following my show since the very beginning you know that i watched wilder cleanly destroy robert harlanius with only three punches thrown in the first round it is still one of the most spectacular knockouts i have ever seen and i cannot stress that enough however Completely discrediting his performance as taking too long is just disrespectful. I don't know how people can verbally hear that Anthony Joshua in his own corner to Derek James was having trouble with landing the right hand and still coming out to claim that his performance was nothing compared to Deontay Wilder's. The entire boxing world knows that Deontay Wilder is a right hand specialist to the point where many people even said that Wilder's only credible weapon against his opposition was his right hand. Obviously, there have been some weird narratives spread by even weirder people, but it's hard to disagree when the masses and sometimes even the promotions themselves perpetuate these narratives with the way they talk about fighters from time to time. I cannot stress enough. Once again, I cannot stress this all to you enough how wild and borderline delusional it is to completely violate Anthony Joshua's performance and to even try to compare it to Deontay Wilder's. We know that Joshua is a quote unquote complete boxer and you know for a fact that I'm going to keep it 100 in this episode. I ain't going to cap. Ain't no cap in my rap. That's for sure. Joshua has a jab plenty of body shots, a beautiful cross, and an uppercut that has, for some reason or another, become rare to see. Wilder is a puncher, not a boxer. Once again, Deontay Wilder is a puncher. He typically only aims for the head, and he doesn't throw as many jabs as he used to, preferring to rely on powerful straight shots or clubbing hooks that have added plenty of names to his lengthy resume. It is a dangerous game to play for Deontay Wilder, and it showed against Tyson Fury each time they fought. Joshua only lost against Alexander Usyk because he made the severe mistake of not fighting at his size, which is common amongst all of Usyk's opponents who were listed larger than him on the tail of the tape. Joshua fought on the inside, which gave Usyk access to easy punches and eventually a points victory. Both men have tendencies that are risky in the ring, but they fight much differently. So why does there need to be constant comparisons? I'm not getting it. The math is not mathing. Showtime Sean Porter, one of my favorite fighters, as always. Shout out to Showtime. His age-old theory of styles make fights has never been wrong. So why are there people trying to mark up Joshua's performance against Wilder's? 
is so nonsensical that it almost makes me forget that boxing fans are real people with real thoughts. These are actual human beings going on social media, actual human beings coming onto shows like this, just saying the most outlandish things ever. It, it is crazy to me. You could put a bunch of these nuts on a Netflix special, and I promise you 100% it would be better comedy than Andrew Schultz. Yeah, so circling back to the beginning of the show, Alicia Baumgartner is in trouble, y'all. She is in big, big, big trouble. The sports world was rocked with news that Alicia Baumgartner tested positive for the performance-enhancing drugs mesterolone and methenolone. I, for one, was completely distraught when I heard the reports a few days ago, but I'm not sure how seriously we could take these allegations. The frequency at which fighters have been testing positive for performance-enhancing drugs from Matchroom and DAZN has been sus. I don't care how many people are going to come out and say, oh, but 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 it's just DAZN. But, but, but. No, no, no. Look at all the people who have come out with these adverse findings in their tests. We had one guy, one guy from Showtime PBC, a singular person. Three to four people this year have been from the zone or matchroom. Even last year, it's getting crazy. I already spoke my mind on the Connor Ben situation in the first episode of, of this show. The first ever episode, I spoke my mind on it. And I don't think that it's out of the question to assume he's innocent at this point in time. And continuously claiming that Connor Ben took steroids is just a lie. Of course, I afford Alicia Baumgartner the same luxury. I keep the same energy across the board, but only because of the shady histories of the labs affiliated with these promotions, as well as the testing agencies themselves. UCAD, USADA, and VADA haven't had the best reputation in the recent years. Probably the last 10 years, the last decade, all three of these testing agencies have kind of been falling off the wayside. USADA, they ended up getting exposed by Yoro Romero in 2017 for falsely handing him a sanctioning fee, which led to him winning a $26 million lawsuit. They said, oh, well, we found adverse uh, findings in the, the, the A, B, C, D, E, F, G sample, so we're going to suspend you for six months. And Yoel is like, wait, y'all are suspending me for steroids that I didn't even take? So he sues them sues the pharmaceutical company, and then wins. Connor Ben, he ended up receiving aid from the WBC, who used their clean athlete program to conclude that Connor Ben's banned substance came from eggs. Whether or not you agree with the WBC's findings is personal preference, but Ben went further to say that of the three samples he submitted, the lab disappeared with one, a singular urine test mishandling and tainting the testing procedure. Alicia Baumgartner is in the exact same situation. Don't let Eddie Hearn and all of these other promoters and, and all the guys on social media, friend, don't, don't let these guys with the money, keep in mind, these guys have the money in their pockets. Don't let them fool you. Do not. The true question for Alicia Baumgartner is whether or not she'll take the same route Yoel Romero did and hit the court to clear her name and be financially compensated for having her reputation and relationship with important figures in boxing ruined. I really do not like the way things have rolled out with Baumgartner this week, and I hope that she is able to defend herself effectively.
that ESPN did report. It says Bumgarner has tested positive July 12th, but her test results on July 15th and 16th both came back limpio, a.k.a. And, clean. And, and there was also a test um, in June that was clean as well. June 16th, June 16th. was reported. So if you just heard that from Nestor, you would completely understand why this makes no sense. This isn't a case of, oh, she failed three tests back to back to back. Oh, she did this and then. No, she passed the test all the way back in June, passes two of the tests in July. But for some reason, the middle test not only disappeared. Not only did it disappear and take nine days to process, she tested positive on this same test. So something is not right. Something is not adding up. It is not making sense. And I've been saying this for a long time. When situations do not make sense and it seems too good to be true, then it most definitely is. There is absolutely no way that Alicia Baumgartner took a performance-enhancing drug or several performance-enhancing drugs like these labs claim, which isn't even a real certified lab, by the way. We ended up finding that out, too. That lab is uh, kind of sus, but hey, we, we're, not, we're not here for the conspiracy theories. We're here for the facts. And the facts are she tested positive for one test that magically disappeared and did not take the usual amount of time to process. The same exact thing happened to Connor Ben. Why are these labs taking so long to process these tests? We know that something is going down. There has to be tampering of some sort happening behind the scenes. And this is exactly what Jessica McCaskill references in her own interview. On the topic of Jessica McCaskill, she ended up speaking up. I love seeing black women supporting other black women. She decided to stand up and risk her career. And even now, she was hit with a cease and desist letter from Matchroom and Eddie Hearn. On that same topic, Jessica McCaskill, the current unified, undisputed champion in her own welterweight class, chimed in on the situation. According to McCaskill, the case goes a lot deeper than the general public knows. It involves Matchroom. Vada and the labs that Vada uses. McCaskill speaks right now. Go ahead and roll that. With Rick, I left him at the bar real quick. I was like, I, I got to get on and support Alicia. I told her I support her. So, I mean, the shit that I'm about to say right now is like, they might fuck up my, my next fight with Sandy Ryan. But I'm going to say it one time. So if y'all don't listen to me, I'm going to scream for this shit because I'm not saying it again. So let's do the math like really quick, okay? Alicia signed a multiple fight contract with Matchroom in what, uh, 20, beginning January 2022. Multiple fights. She had four fights. She has a mandatory now who is Chow, right? When you have a mandatory, you don't necessarily have to have a promoter. It's like mine went to a, to a bid. And what happened to my fight? I was supposed to fight like June 24th or something like that. They... I signed my contract, my opponent signed my contract, and I, they asked me to sign a matchroom re-up with them for three more fights. I was like, let's, let's finish this mandatory and figure out what's going to happen. What happened, because I did not sign the contract with matchroom, they took my opponent and gave her to, to Terry Harper. 
So at that point, I had no fight. I had to sign back up with my troom for a couple more fights. With her, she got to fight Choi. And they're not saying, hey, Alicia signed another multiple fight contract. They're saying Alicia pop hot. So maybe she's not signing the contract. Maybe she's like putting Matchroom in a corner somewhere and they don't like that. So all of a sudden, quote unquote, she popped hot. Fuck out of here. So, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of shady shit that goes on. A lot of people don't know the background of what happens behind the scenes in boxing. Honestly, fans don't really care. They just want to see fights. People want to talk about how Alicia looks really muscular. She's been looking muscular. She came into the game looking the way that she looks. And a professional, she got over 4,000 followers on Instagram. So, And she got sponsors. So she's not going to be out here looking fat. She ain't going to be out here, you know, you know, boozing and looking crazy. She got she got money coming in. So she's, she's going to stay fit. Nobody says, wow, Canelo looks like super fit when he's not fighting. No, nobody talks out of pocket like that. So now they want to come at her all super crazy. I look fit 24-7 because I stay in the gym 24-7. Better not nobody talk shit about me either. I'm out here trying to find, like, separate sources to get tested because I don't trust people talking about some, hey, go get tested with Vada. Vada doesn't come through. Who comes through? Vada. Vada is a different company than Vada. There's multiple people that are testing you when it comes to if you're a matchroom fighter or not. And that shit is just, it's not controlled. WADA does not send your test results to you. They keep them. I got tested by WADA when I fought Cecilia. So I don't know if Cecilia tested negative or positive or what, because they didn't send that information. I contacted WADA and said, hey, did you guys send somebody to test me? And they said, no. Why would they send WADA when, when they have a contract with us? So shady shit happens all the time. I support Alicia. They're, like, look at Conor Ben. They tried to conceal Conor Ben up until the fucking actual fight day. And somebody leaked it, and it came out. So if they can conceal people's test results, they can also make up fake test results. That's all I got to say. Champ. I'm not repeating it. So, so as you pretty much just heard, the testing and the business contracts go hand in hand. Contracts with the boxers, contracts with the labs and testing agencies, all of it has to do with money. Money is exchanging hands, and we are all aware of this. It is a lot safer to get private testing done by a private lab than risk getting cooked. Somebody cue to AB. He got his ass cooked. He got cooked. Adrian, you didn't go down like that, huh? He got cooked. By your potential promotion. It is a sad reality that combat sports athletes have to face. It, it's, it's the reality. This is the world that we live in right now. This is 2023. Corruption is something that these athletes have to carefully tip. Really, not even tiptoe. It's, it's more like you're playing a game of hide and seek from this corruption. Seeing as how easily someone could go from signing a million dollar contract to being put on ice to having all these crazy rumors being spread about you to uh, it's, it's, it's just a whole lot of ridiculous statements that are being thrown from all sides. And it's really, really difficult for the average person to be able to discern, OK, this is what Matram is saying. This is what the fighter is saying. This is what the testing agency has said. Or maybe the testing agency hasn't said anything at all. It's just important that we all are able to dissect this in a way that proves not only the point that I am trying to make here about the corruption, but also the points of the athletes. Why are these labs so sus?
While I let you guys digest all that steroid talk, let's move on to talk about Oscar Valdez and Emmanuel Vaquero Navarrete. Oh my goodness, they had an amazing fight. It was probably one of the best fights that Top Rank has put on this year. When you have one Mexican fighter who has absolutely zero intentions on losing and another Mexican fighter who has absolutely zero, zero, C-E-R-O-Z-E-R-O, whichever way you want to spell it, of losing, you are in for one of the greatest fights of the week. Sometimes you might even end up with a card like that and it'll be the only fight of the weekend. So it definitely is the fight of the week because there's no competition. There's absolutely no way that you could look at that fight and say that that was not the best fight of the weekend. I love Joshua. AJ is an amazing fighter. I was very impressed with his knockout over Hellenius, but I really want you guys to focus on Oscar Valdez's performance and Emmanuel Navarrete's performance because, wow, Vaquero, he had one of the craziest, craziest tests against my boy, Oscar. And Oscar, he is one of those fighters who has fought pretty much all the competition in his weight class. He's achieved championships. He's really put his foot in that door and said, you know what? I am not going to get taken out of any sort of conversation for a championship just because I lost to Shakur. Shakur is arguably one of the greatest out right now. So I personally think that it's a little unfair that people were trying to count him out and say, oh, well, Vaquero's going to cook you. Even though he did kind of get cooked, he still was landing bombs on him. So many people were talking trash about Oscar Valdez, whether it was his loss from Shakur or the whole fake tea situation that was happening a couple years back in Canelo's camp. It's just really disheartening to see that and then once again, like we have seen several times this year, such as with Stephen Fulton, after he lost, oh, all of a sudden, oh, we, we, we love you, Vardes, we love you. Where was this love before? You were just talking trash last week during the press conference. I'm telling you, boxing fans sometimes, they're, it, 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 it's, a, it's a mixed bag. You're either going to get people who are delusional, like the folks I just described, or you're going to get mad heads who fully understand the difficulties of coming into a world title fight and sometimes not even a title fight it could be a tune-up and these guys will still be ungrateful and disrespectful and talk about the guy's last loss or how their last performance wasn't that great let him live and yes he did perform well against Navarrete so everybody who talked trash still got blown up they still got blown up so it didn't really make much sense either way for Vardes, it was really a mixture of different shots. I would say that his shot selection and variety is what definitely gave him the edge in the fight. Now, if this were any other opponent in the division, I could see Vardes taking the W. I could definitely see him taking the W. But the reason that he lost was because Vaquero was more active. Emmanuel Navarrete is one of the most physically active fighters in the ring he's going to throw punches from the most unorthodox positions just to land them he was throwing uppercuts from long range and still somehow landing them against valdez it was amazing it was truly a work of art 
seeing Navarrete perform like that in such a way that really displays like, yo, you guys are still not getting the, the, the bigger picture. You guys still aren't getting it yet. I can shoot from anywhere and still land. I'm the master in this ring, and you have absolutely zero idea what you're going to do against me other than throw a winging shot, which is kind of what the fight devolved into in the final round. Of course, it is a championship fight. Valdez wanted to do everything that he could to prove to the judges like, yo, I'm still in this fight. Please give me some rounds. Please let me let me get this draw. Please, please let me get this draw. But naturally, that's what's going to happen at the end of a fight. You're going to have two guys who are just slugging it out. But across the entire first 10 rounds, Vaquero was controlling Valdez with ease. It was very easy to control Valdez, to carry him across the ring, to control the pace and the flow of the fight. And I promise you, if you watch it back, you will see exactly what I'm describing step by step. The ring generalship of Navarrete, which, as you know, I, I appreciate very much, is amazing. Ring generalship is one of my favorite things to see when I'm in a ring. If you can control that ring, control the four corners, control the perimeter, control the center of the ring, you are a world-class fighter. If you can do that without having to worry about your opponent throwing a counter or getting in close, you're able to, to keep them at the distance that you find appropriate, you're world-class. It's true, you're world-class. Because that is one of the most difficult things to do. To land a knockout shot, you need precision. Precision is a different level than ring generalship. Ring generalship, if you've seen any heavyweight fights, is difficult to achieve. Ring generalship, even at super middleweight, middleweight, light middleweight, even, even down to the 120s, ring generalship is extremely difficult to maintain because your opponent is always going to be anticipating what your next move is. You always have to guess on top of what your opponent is going to do in response to you. You have to know what your opponent is going to do next. You're thinking three steps ahead of yourself. Ring generalship is impressive, and I want you all to please support Emmanuel Navarrete, especially after this impressive display against Oscar Valdez. Now, since I was able to discuss Navarrete's unique offense twice here on this show already, last week during the preview for the fight, and way, way, way back when he first won his world championship, we do have to talk. We need to talk. There needs to be a discussion surrounding what goes on in each man's camp. We know for a fact that the way Navarrete boxes, his coach is focused on variety. The punch variety is always going to be of the utmost importance to Navarrete. But for Valdez, it's very obvious that the Canelo camp, Eddie Reynoso, they are extremely focused on power punches, which is something that I've talked about several times on this show already. These guys are extremely, extremely diligent when it comes to training power punches, following through on these power punches, and adding power punches in combination. The issue with this specific type of training is that you forget head movement sometimes. You get so focused on biting down on your opponent, fully releasing that power 
that you forget to take your head off the center line. Valdez had the situation in the bag in round five. But the second he started dipping his head, he would get lit up by the uppercuts that I just described to you all a few minutes earlier. Long range uppercuts. Of course, Navarrete had the reach advantage, but dipping your head and leaving it straight down the middle on the center line is giving your opponent easy access to an uppercut. This wouldn't have happened if Valdez really took his head movement in the fight more seriously. I definitely would have liked to see more of that during this fight. But of course, like I just said, I believe it was the power punch training that really had that effect on him. He was more focused on sitting on his punches, delivering the maximum amount of power rather than delivering said power, taking his head off the center line and setting up as if he would for another combination. We're, we're really in the business of misfortune and what ifs and situations that we all wish could have definitely happened because the WBC has officially dropped Deontay Wilder and Andy Ruiz as its mandatory fight. There is no more mandatory between these two men. And we know for a fact that the winner of this fight would have gone on to fight Tyson Fury for his WBC championship and then eventually went on to hopefully, hopefully, hopefully there were no plans for it. The winner tournament was all speculation. We don't know if there's concrete evidence for it yet, but the plan was for these men, whichever one was the victor of the final eliminator mandatory match. Fight Tyson Fury, winner of that match. One of the three would have gone on to fight Alexander Usyk and unify all four belts, actually five belts since Usyk already has four, together to once again make the heavyweight division whole, which would have been the first time since way, way back in the days of Lennox Lewis. And I'm really disappointed that we're still in this position in 2023. A lot of people are saying that we won't see a significant fight until 2024. I'm banking on mid 2024, but earliest, 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 I say 2023 for a big movement in the heavyweight division because we're already getting right now a title defense slash unification between WBA champion Daniel Dubois and Alexander Usyk in one week. That fight is next week. Yes, I am very excited for that. But aside from that fight, we haven't really heard or seen a lot of big movements in the division. Joe Joyce doesn't have a belt. Interim belts aren't really... Well, I, I'd say that interim belts are important, but they don't hold the same level of importance as a mainline title. Let's just be honest here. I'm being completely factual. Everybody knows that the interim champion is up next, but the actual championship and the actual champion who holds one four or five, whichever number of the belts is the legitimate champion. However, we do have to remember that there has been huge, huge, huge talks for a fight between Anthony Joshua and Deontay Wilder. So I'm assuming that this news that just came out yesterday is related to the fact that Anthony Joshua just knocked out Robert Hellenius. Andy Ruiz and Deontay Wilder were unable to come to a full contractual agreement. 
after several weeks of negotiation and insults and back and forth that I've already covered on this show quite a few times, that would open up the possibility for Deontay Wilder and Anthony Joshua to negotiate along the lines because we know, hey, Deontay Wilder's PBC Showtime. Anthony Joshua was a DAZN fighter, so either it's going to be a co-promotion or it's going to be one guy crossing over to the other, whether that's Joshua over to PBC or Deontay over to DAZN. It all really depends on what happens along the party lines. In this case, promotional lines, but party lines, everybody is used to hearing that. It's very strange that we still have to sit and wait for a heavyweight fight of this magnitude after so long. It's really frustrating to think about if you've been a fan of any of these men for a considerable period of time. It really gets agitating when you remember like, yo, Deontay Wilder's been out for how long? Andy Ruiz, he beat Ortiz, beat Chris Ariola and just ran off. What's going on with the heavyweight division? Tyson Fury, he just fought the same guy again. What's going on? We can't have any meaningful fights now? These guys should be mixing it in. There's no reason that we're still on hold. And it really shows that throughout the entire duration of this show's existence, I say the same thing every single week. No one cares about the heavyweight division anymore because the heavyweight division has become too stagnant. It's frozen. Everybody wants to fight everybody except the guys they're supposed to fight. The champions don't want to unify. The guys at the bottom are waiting to get their chance at a shot against the guy at the top. But that's not happening because the commissions don't want that to happen in the first place. And all the guys who are just barely breaking to the top, like I just mentioned, Gilles Zhang, Joe Joyce. These guys are like, yo, when's my time? When's my shot? I'm ranked. I I got an interim belt. I got a little something, something. I want a regional title, domestic title. Where's my shot? Nothing is being worked out. Absolutely nothing. And I doubt that we're going to see any movement soon outside of Anthony Joshua and Deontay Wilder. Dennis the Menace McCann. If there's one thing about me, y'all already know I'm going to show love to Willow Hayden. And y'all know for a fact that I'm going to show love to my boy Dennis. But I do have to make this clear. If you do not think that that man got robbed, you and I need to sit down and have a serious conversation because there's no way that you could watch that war and say that Baluta won. There's absolutely no way that our Romanian friend Baluta won. It's impossible. Impossible. He got knocked down cleanly twice. And the referee obviously wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt and say, oh, man, well, he didn't really get knocked down. It was a slip. Even though if you watch the footage back clearly, you could see Dennis clip him with a counter right hook. You can see it. It is so apparent that it's insane that that ref even said that. He was flat on his back. And naturally, the ref is the final person. The last defense against saying you have either been knocked down or it was a slip, accidental headbutt, fouls, all of it, it comes down to the referee. But in this match, I do have to say 
that this referee made a serious lapse in judgment because that boy Baluta, he got sat down by that counter. There were so many times throughout the fight that I would give rounds to McCann and I'd say, you know what? This dude really has no defense against his counters. He really has no defense against them. He's just going to keep stepping forward, throwing the shots and eating them as he comes inside. It's like his coaches didn't tell him, yo, this guy, this kid, this 22 year old, he is a counter puncher. He's going to light you up from the outside if you keep trying to come into his range. Once you're in this kid's punching range, you're going to get hurt. And that's exactly what happened to him. Now, there are people online who are going to be like, well, well, he got the damage, though. He did not get a single lick of damage out of that boy. If you watch the entire fight, all of the rounds that the fight went through, because if you watch the fight, you know that the fight didn't go all 10. He had an accidental clash of heads with him two times, both of which opened cuts on his head. So I don't know where people are getting this quote unquote damage from because the damage came from a foul. Of course, it is accidental. Therefore, he did not have any points removed, but it is still a foul nonetheless. I don't see why people are starting to pick up this weird UFC narrative around boxers, especially when you consider that this sort of thing happens way more frequently than it does in boxing the only thing that the ufc has over boxing is the eye pokes because obviously there's there's no such thing as eye pokes in boxing but regardless of all of that it is just extremely strange to me how i scored the fight six rounds to four in mccann's favor initially initially because i, I i'm like you know what if they go into the 10th he's got the round He's got the pace. He's got the aggression. He's starting to slow down a little bit, but he'll be able to finish out strong. So I would have scored it six to four. I definitely would have scored it six, four. Of course, we didn't make it that far. So I would say five, four. Now, whether or not you agree, disagree, you have to keep it factual. Baluta came forward and got countered too many times. His defense off the step in was atrocious. Now, does Dennis have the same issue? Absolutely. Absolutely. There is no way that you could watch this fight and say that Dennis McCann is ready for the world level because he is not. This fight really exposed just how much he and his team need to work on defense, especially when he's on the back foot throwing uppercuts because he got rocked pretty badly pretty badly in several exchanges it wasn't as if he was just dancing around him and having fun he did get hurt i'd say i from my estimate three times he was hurt and of course he hurt baluta about four so they were trading on rocks trading on shots but dennis's defense on the back foot was not good it wasn't good it was not. There were several times where I noticed that his guard was low. He would drop either his left hand or his right hand. He's a southpaw, so it's extremely important that his guard is tight. There's no way you're going to run up against a guy in that division, super bantamweight, and not have issues if your guard is not tight. Everyone knows that these guys are a lot faster, and the Baluta fight showed that. He is going to be up against some very fast punchers. Now, his reflexes are great. Don't get me wrong. His head movement is nice. He's able to 
Maneuver around the ring excellently. Use the ropes and the corner to his advantage on the defensive and offensive. He looks great. But the head movement plus the guard being tight creates an almost impenetrable defense. And a future opponent is going to have keep just keep this in mind. A future opponent is going to have to try incredibly hard to cut off the ring in order to break down his guard. Because he moves very, very quickly. He's very fast on his feet. His footwork is excellent. And like I said already two times, head movement is impeccable. But the guard is the issue. But then again, this is a larger issue across all prospects. Regardless of affiliation, regardless of location, I've noticed that a lot of prospects are having issues with the guard. I'm not sure if it's, if it's because they fall in love with the power or they're fiending for the knockout and they get too excited and they forget to put their hands back up. There are so many different there, there, there are so many reasons why this could happen. Maybe the coaches just don't train it as well as they do with others. We had the exact same conversation about Oscar Valdez earlier. Certain coaches train certain things. Certain coaches will train power shots. Certain coaches will train combinations. Certain, certain coaches will do both. They'll train combinations with power shots. Certain coaches will train footwork. Certain coaches will train head movement and footwork combined. There, every coach has his own specific setup. Some coaches want their fighters to be all-rounders. Some coaches want their their fighters to be defensive strikers. Some, fight, some fighters have coaches who want them to be offensive strikers. There is a strong and solid variety of coaches around the world. But when it comes to these prospects, the one thing that is common across all of them is the guard. The orthodox prospects... Fell in love with keeping their left hand low. Southpaw prospects, they fell in love with keeping their right hand low. It's like everybody wants to be Roy Jones. I feel like this is the Roy Jones effect. You know how we had the Mayweather effect where every fighter wanted to do the shoulder roll and, and do all the, the, the angles and the, and the playing around off the parry with the right hand and the left hand and the hook and the uppercut after rolling off of a shot. Everybody wanted to do that. But now I feel like the times have switched, and now everybody wants to fight like Roy Jones Jr. Everybody wants to keep their lead hand low. And I'm not understanding why, because that is exactly how Roy Jones got knocked out in the first place. We just we just realized that with Ryan Garcia, keeping, keeping the guard hand, whether it's the lead or the rear, especially the lead, is going to cause problems. You're going to get... If, you, if you're not going to get knocked out, you are at the very least going to get knocked down and knocked down hard, just like Garcia did. And I'm not I'm not ranting and raving about Ryan Garcia's loss because, of course, I have a lot of respect for him. I think that he really put on the best performance he could against Tank at that present moment in time. He just wasn't ready. So don't think that this is Ryan Garcia's slander. This is just me putting this all into perspective for you, my audience. These coaches need to start working on keeping their fighters' hands up, whether it's the lead or the rear. Tell these guys they're not Roy Jones. Please tell these prospects they're not Roy Jones Jr. Because when you run into a guy, whether they're world-class or not, it could be a journeyman you'll run into. You will have significant issues. Significant. 
And it'll become very apparent when you fight these guys. And this is exactly what happened to Dennis McCann. So while he did have an excellent performance, A, I definitely think he was robbed of the win, even though it was a draw. B, he still needs to improve his guard. C, the main takeaways from this fight against Ionut Baluta are those three things. A, B, and C. Amazing work from Dennis McCann. But my boy, you got to start telling your coaches to keep them hands up. They need to start slapping y'all with the pads again after you drop them. We need these old school coaches back, man. I'm sure that you guys are really surprised by the fact that there is no major cards this weekend, except for UFC. There's always UFC 291. If you guys are very, very, very hype for Sugar Sean O'Malley versus the Yadman. Aljamin Sterling. We gotta see that fight come to a fitting conclusion. I don't wanna see no disqualifications. I don't wanna see no eye pokes. Out. None of that. None of that. We need a knockout or a submission finish. And I'm hoping it goes to Sugar Sean. And I know a lot of y'all are gonna be surprised. But Damani, aren't you a Yadman? Yes. Yes, I am. I'm big Yadman. I'm big Yadi. But. I don't bangs with Al Jermaine, regardless of the fact that he's Yad, regardless of the fact that he's from New York, because of the way he got that W over Yan. I know it was mad long ago, but I'm one of those guys who just can't get over a freak win like that. I, I, Me personally, I just don't bangs with guys who take victories like that. He Has he proven himself as a capable champion? I don't know. Because even when he got to fight Yan again, he literally just sat on his back. So... I, uh, hey, that, that's that's all up in the air for y'all to decide. But if you banging with Sugar Sean, make sure you leave me a thick review and comment in the comments section, wherever you are watching this episode. Now, as for boxing, we do have a card on zone. We have Galal Yafai. We got Frank. We got Kane Baker versus Jordan Flynn, which is a rematch. These guys have been talking crazy. They've been chatting madwas on socials. So I know y'all are very excited for that one. Other than that, we don't really have much. Everything happened either earlier in the week or things just got shifted onto different dates. I'm sure you guys remember the Better Beave versus Oh, I hate even saying his name because I don't I, I, I honestly don't think that he deserved the title shot, but it's still a title fight nonetheless. Calum Smith. That fight ended up getting moved, so we've gotta wait t- till forever to see those two fight. But hey. I am just glad that I got to deliver you guys the news for this week. Regardless of the canceled fights, regardless of the steroids, regardless of the lack of of action this Saturday. I'm still eternally grateful to you all, my audience, and eternally grateful to the one above. Speaking of, if you are drinking, if you are partying, you are doing any sort of activity under the influence this weekend, please be safe. Watch your drinks. Don't drink and drive. Don't operate anything (laughs) while you're impaired, please. All of you, enjoy the fights this weekend. Be safe and God bless.